This is the business of sports. Let's talk Super Bowl and Fox Sports. Every single thing that occurs, I want people to remember this is a business. Guaranteed money isn't necessarily guaranteed. Michael Barr. How high can these valuations go? Scott Soshnank. Duke. Everybody loves rooting against them, right? Evan Novi Williams. Off the field, the NBA has never been buzzier. And the leaders in the sports industry. Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred. Mike Oresco, he's the commissioner of the American Athletic Conference. Jared Smith, president of Ticketmaster. Mindy race car driver, Elio Castroneves. Bloomberg Business of Sports. From Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Scott Sock. I'm Evan Novi Williams. And I'm Michael Barr. And this is a special President's Day edition of the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports and we're talking about the nhl players in the olympics well they're not in the olympics right now <laughs> that's that's the problem the the nhl players seemingly really would like to go back to the olympics the nhl has said there's a whole bunch of reasons not to do it however the international ice hockey federation has seemed to very recently alleviate many of those concerns prompting the NHL to say, well, we should really tie this to a new collective bargaining agreement. And that, Mr. Novi Williams, is where the problem starts because the players do not like the fact that their participation in the games hinges on a new CBA. Yeah, so I can provide a little bit of history here. For folks who don't know, NHL players played in the Olympics from 1998 through 2014. Uh, Obviously better for the Olympics to have the biggest stars in the world uh, playing in the games. And then in 2018, the Olympics that that recently happened in in, in Korea, they didn't go. Uh, And it was a very easy argument not to go, I think, for the NHL. As you said, Scott, you know, the the IOC pulled a lot of the funding on the hockey side. They stopped providing airfare, insurance, housing uh, for NHL players and, and, you know, NHL teams, you know, were taking on the risk already of players getting hurt. They were disrupting their season. I think they had a very simple argument. But flash forward to right now, obviously players want to play. And as you said, the IOC and international hockey has filled in some of those gaps. They've promised to, to restore that funding. They're also open to a potential marketing mix between the Olympics and the, and the NHL, you know, because of the way the Olympics protects its rights. The NHL has never really been able to use Sidney Crosby's goals for Canada in part of its marketing. The international hockey seems to be open to that as well. Um, and, you know, given all that, it seems as though the arguments for the NHL uh, seem to be leaving it a bit. Well, what I don't understand is when you participate in the Olympics, it's supposed to be for the respect of your country and for the pride of your country. And now all of a sudden, and just like you said, now we can't use this clip and now we can't use that clip. It's like, well, well, well wait a minute. What, why, then what are the Olympics for? Yeah, the media portion. Yeah, I don't, don't want to. Go ahead. Yeah, I, mean, I don't want to minimize the concern, though. I mean, Evan just said, you know, sort of stop your season. And it was just one of the laundry list of things. I don't want to minimize the concern from the NHL. Mm-hmm. You do have to interrupt your season for a bit of time. I mean, we're talking several weeks where there's no NHL hockey. So your core fans may not want that to happen. However, we're also talking about a league that is looking to expand its fan base, to find new markets. When you weigh the promotion that you're getting by going to the Olympics and the platform, you have to wonder how many NHL owners, I'm guessing Ted Leonce is one of them, says, 
it's worth it, fellas, we should actually go and do this. Yeah, there's one other thing that we should mention in this kind of whole calculus, talking about disrupting the, the, the league season. I imagine when the World Cup of Hockey, which the NHL owns, is up again for, for its next iteration, the NHL will happily disrupt its season for that. Uh, I do wonder if there is kind of this calculus right now among the NHL where they own essentially a rival international hockey property to what the mm-hmm. Olympics offers. And if the, if the NHL can make that the go-to, the one where all the stars play, the one where countries start to care about, that obviously helps the NHL owners as well. So so I do wonder how, how much of this kind of back and forth is also owners saying, listen, you know, if there has to be one international hockey thing that everybody cares about, why not make it the World Cup of Hockey, the one that we own, and therefore we're really profiting from it, as opposed to disrupting our season, risking our players going over there just for some accommodations and maybe some share of the marketing and, and the media promotion. Maybe I'm sounding old school, but I, I remember way back the 1980 Olympics and uh, the U.S. beating Russia, uh, and it was just pride of country. Uh, and when you beat the the juggernaut, uh, the Russians, it was like, oh my goodness. Uh, and it, it seems now this is a totally different atmosphere. Now, Barr, let's see if Barr knows since he's old man Barr and went back to 80. Barr, who'd they play in their last game? Oh, Sweden. Wasn't it Sweden? Mm, close. Finland. Oh. <laughs> One oh. off. Oh, All right. yeah, but yeah, most yeah, people, yeah, Most right. people think the Russians was for the gold medal. No, it was not for the gold not. medal. It was, but right. you're right. You're exactly right. So, well, Scott, how do you, where do you kind of stand yeah. on the idea of the NHL using this as a collective bargaining chip? Which seems to be the way that they want. It seems as though the NHL is telling players, "You guys really want to go to this? Great. Well, we'll include it in in our CBA negotiations, and uh, and, and we'll get something in return for it." Yeah, as if you needed any more examples of what we talk about all the time. That these things, though often espoused by owners and by others as civic trusts, these are businesses. <laughs> That's why we mm-hmm. have a business of sports show. You utilize whatever leverage you have in negotiations and this right now seems to be a big piece of leverage for the owners because the players you can talk about the world cup of hockey all you want these players don't grow up watching the world cup of (laughs) hockey saying this is the one i want to win they want a gold medal around their neck that's what they want to do in exchange for that what are you willing to concede just a negotiation yeah and one of the before we move on real quick one of the, the things the players have said back to that in the next olympics in beijing winter olympics 2020 in february 2022 sorry in february the current cba doesn't expire until september 2022 so in some ways and, and i understand this argument also you can make a case that the nhl is trying to put in its next cba negotiations uh coverage of an event that happens in under the current cba so we can move on. I don't on, think but... we can make that case. I think we know that's what they're yeah, doing. Yeah, that's true. In yeah, fact, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, this next story is weird. Bluntly, I don't understand it. The New Orleans Saints and the sex abuse allegations against the local Roman Catholic Church. And please explain to me what's the connection here. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, there is a, a major lawsuit. A, a, a couple dozen men are suing uh, the Roman Catholic Church, the archdiocese down in New Orleans, uh, for sexual abuse allegations. And lawyers in that process claim that they got their hands during discovery on a number of emails between 
the Archdiocese and the New Orleans Saints, uh, in which they claim the Saints were helping, giving PR advice, essentially, for how the church could go public with some of the allegations and, and make public statements that would maybe undermine uh, victims or lessen the impact publicly uh, of those disclosures. The Saints have admitted that they were having conversations, that they were asked for advice. They have denied actually you know, doing anything nefarious in that way. But there is now a major fight, and there's going to be a hearing this week, uh, but a major fight right now about whether these emails should be made public or not. Yeah, it's funny how we're talking about public relations again. It sounds like, you know, we could lump this right in with the Houston Astros and folks Mm. who have not gotten this right. But you have to wonder, did the Saints ever contemplate this going public? And from a public relations standpoint, (laughs) how it would look for them to be advising the church. And from what I understand, Gail Benson has close ties to the church and she was asked for assistance. I get it. But this might be one where you say, I'm sorry, but we cannot have the team participating here in any way. It's just not something we should be a part of. And the team has been trying to keep things from coming out and disclosure. It's just a difficult look for the team to be taking a side here. Well, why would the Roman Catholic Church even want to call the New Orleans Saints in the first place? I mean, I get it. Yes, you're, you're talking about trying to get PR advice, but you're calling the New Orleans Saints? Uh, you know, I don't it's, get that. A, it's a good question, and I, I don't know if we know the, the full answer. As Scott mentioned, Gail Benson, who is the owner of the Saints, uh, she's the you know the, the wife of late Saints owner Tom Benson. Uh, she's a devote Catholic. Um, she's friends with the New Orleans Arch, Archbishop uh, Gregory Amond, and she's donated millions to the church. So there's obviously a, as a, I would, a by the way, Evan, as I would there. expect her to be, right? Yeah. I, I, I would expect someone in that position to have those close ties and to lots of business leaders and, and um, leaders of all sorts in the community. Absolutely, I get it. However, you would think that her first and foremost concern should be for the brand of the Saints. And this being the topic that it is, did anyone consider, was there blind loyalty? What did anybody consider? Should we be doing this? Like you said, Barr, I understand why they reached out, maybe for some help and some expertise from a community big shot. But who on the Saints side said, this might not be where we need to put our brand. Totally, totally agreed. And we may, you know, in the next couple of days, we may get an answer about whether these emails are going to go public. And if they do... Somebody is mischaracterizing what's in them. Either the lawyers for for these uh, for these accusers are are mischaracterizing it, or the saints and and the church are mischaracterizing it. But uh, kudos to the AP, which has been you know pretty vocal in trying to get uh, get these records released. Uh, and I believe that the hearing that is later this week is going to be open to the public as well. So there will be media in that hearing too. Um, but you know, I, I don't think we've heard the end of this, and certainly not if, if the actual emails come out. Uh, we can see kind of the extent of, of this kind of back and forth PR advice between between the church and the team. Has anybody, by the way, in in the grand scheme of the NFL and pro sports, has anybody ever held up the New Orleans Saints as some sort of pinnacle of public relations? Well, that, I, I mean, I, I I'm not trying to be funny, but that's kind of what I was getting at earlier. Is like, well, who in the Roman Catholic Church? Please forgive me thought calling the New Orleans Saints was going to be the be-all, send-all. And I'm not trying to, to cause a controversy. No, I get it, anymore. but there are people who, but Barr, you're right. There are people and firms who specialize, specialize. in things like this. Yeah. yeah, I mean, has anybody ever heard of Ari Fleischer? Hey, Ari, I got a call. I mean, he's done this. 
you just wonder why the New Orleans Saints. Yeah, that I'm I'm with you, Bar. I don't understand the first phone call and then pushing it to the next. I, I'm not sure on the yeah, here's what we can do to help. Well, let's talk about now some Michigan State football. Brand new coach, Mel Tucker, who is replacing Mark D'Antonio. Uh, he got a huge monster contract, $5.5 million annually. Not bad. Ooh, my goodness. Uh, his departure from Colorado after a year sparked renewed discussion about the fairness of the NCAA's transfer rules. Yeah, I find this one actually fairly interesting for, for two reasons, and you just mentioned both of them. One, he got a huge contract. Usually what when— was, Eben, Eben yeah. you know this. What was his record at Colorado? Uh, I, I, he was there for one year. Um, I, sub five, I, I, significantly sub 500. Yeah, yeah. And, and usually when, when you're a big program and you get rid of a coach who's been there for a long time and has won a lot— you end up paying the next guy a little bit less. <laughs> That's generally the w- the way it happens. The, the the harm of losing your coach is kind of offset by the fact that you don't have to pay the next guy as much money. This is happening the opposite. Mel Tucker is getting a lot more money than Mark D'Antonio ever made when he was at Michigan State. Uh, and just for reference, this is a this is almost a top ten coaching contract in in college college football right now. Way more than Ed Orgeron got at L- LSU last year. Just to put that in, in context. So that's a big one, right? People are you know it's it's a lot of money. The second and I think the more interesting interesting thing is that he was at Colorado for one year, uh, left after the early signing period and after National Signing Day. And coaches are allowed, and, and he should be allowed to, he, he's allowed to make that move, but players are not allowed to make that move. So he has stranded a number of people at Colorado that recruited him, that he recruited this year, that, that came to play with him, that when he told them, I'm committed to this program, and he is allowed to move, leave for, for twice the money, but the players he recruited this year are not. And I think that that is kind of a hypocritical stance that's getting a lot more attention now because Mel Tucker did this. Eben, this, we, we, we've talked about this for years now, sort of that unfair nature of players are tied to the program when coaches aren't. Yeah. But we've also seen at Missouri and some other places what happens when the players decide to flex their collective muscle. Mm. What, who, who's advising the players at Colorado here if they really want to be leaders and, and trailblazers? How about about a half an hour before the first game? We're not playing. Yeah, paging what, Tim Nevius. What, what ha- <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. What wow. what happens when they get together and they decide that if there's a bigger cause out there, and I'm not saying it is, yeah. but we've heard others say the collective rights, we know what's going on with name, image, and likeness now, there is that drumbeat of change. What happens when the entire team at Buffalo gets together and says, this is unfair, we're not going to have it, we're not playing. Then the TV networks and the sponsors start calling the school. What's going on? We're paying you all this money. That's how things get changed. They do have collective power, more than just however many freshmen are there saying, well, this isn't fair. Mm-hmm. You, you just have to wonder when we're actually going to see an action come to fruition and see the change that comes from it. Yeah, and this is a, you know, there was a hearing about name, image, and likeness uh, in in Washington last week. There's so much happening right now, publicly and, you know, governmentally and legally, uh, kind of challenging the various NCAA rules and positions. I think that in in addition to name, image, and likeness, these transfer rules are the other big one that are going to happen, are going to change very quickly, um, because this feels very, very unfair. Just for, just as like a quick chuckle, back in October... Mel Tucker himself, as the coach of Colorado, was criticizing players who transfer. 
Uh, I believe the direct quote is, they there's, all, there's no do. transfer portal, in, yeah. portal in the yeah, real world. Yeah. Uh, yes, this hand-wringing over coaches who say that, you know, it's unfair, players shouldn't be able to transfer freely, which they can't, by the way. It's a, it's a nightmare of a process that is not easy, and, and some players do it anyway. Um, but this hand-wringing that says players should not be doing that, but Mel Tucker can go three different years at three different programs uh, with with no retribution. Um, that seems like an unfair uh, an unfair well, you called, set of you rules. You called it you called it a while back, Eben, when when we heard some uh, administrators over at the NZA saying, "Well, we need help from Congress." You sort of <laughs> knew that was the final straw when, yeah. when the NCAA was saying we need some federal legislation, some federal assistance. You're like, "Wow, they've really got nowhere else to go." <laughs> By the way, uh, according to the Detroit Free Press, according uh, to what they're saying, uh, Coach Tucker is not going to retain any of the assistance from Mark D'Antonio's mm. staff. That's according to what the source is telling the Detroit Free Press. So they never do, Bar, and I'll tell you, that yeah. that's one of the points that folks say when we discuss things like this, when a coach gets fired or whatever. It's always, it's not just the coach. Think about the families, the assistants. There's a whole slew of people who are, about, who are affected when a coach gets, as they used to say, the Ziggy. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. I'm Michael Barr. You can follow me on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. I'm Scott Soshnick. You can follow me on the Twitter at Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi Williams at Novi underscore Williams. Join us again at the end of the week. Our guest this week, Bob Arum, boxing promoter, top-ranked boxing. He's got a big one coming up, the heavyweight fight between Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury. We'll be talking about that. We'll be talking about the health of boxing, media changes, all of that coming up at the end of the week. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world and online wherever you get your podcasts.